I'm Tip. I'm Lauren. I'm Martha. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome. Woo. Welcome, Martha. We have in the van Martha Awajobi, founder, director, and fearless leader of JMB Consulting. I'm going to let Martha introduce themselves, but all you need to know is that Martha is doing amazing stuff, working in coalition with organizations who share her goals of liberation. We've talked about this before. Liberation from oppression through her work at JMB and through the BAME Online series, which supports fundraisers and founders of color to navigate the philanthropic sector and generate sustainable moolah. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. Thank Martha. you. Thanks for having me. It's very weird to hear my own voice in my head. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I sound different. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anyway, I love the sound of my own voice. It's going to make it even more of Good. a loving relationship. Yeah. Well, thank so, you so much for having me. Honestly, it's great. We're in the van. We're in the yes. van. Yes. I'm in my slipper socks. Yeah, oh, that's van life for you. Yeah, that's for you. Basically in yeah. now. I only wear slippers. <laughs> Even in the front. Exactly, exactly. We'll be driving around and Lauren's just got her slippers on and her, I forget her and shoes. I go into the services and I'm like, oh well. <laughs> Amazing. Martha, tell us about your journey. Okay, my journey. Well, I'm gonna start from when I was a baby. Maya Angelou held me as a child. Right? Amazing. So, <laughs> okay. start. My mum's always like, so yeah, so Maya Angelou held you as a baby and I feel like she imparted some of her revolutionary wisdom onto me and then well I guess my whole life I've always had a strong sense of injustice you know what children are like when they really just like feel injustice so strongly I feel like I never really got out of that so I feel like I carry my inner child hand in hand we walk down the street pointing out injustice together so like lots of people in the charity sector I wanted to make the world a better place all of that stuff and entered into the charity sector when I was 18 straight out of school was a street fundraiser learned all of the tricks of the trade and mainly just how to tell a story how to connect with people so it's a very kind of unique experience I think and I think if anyone works in fundraising or in the charity sector they should do street fundraising even if it's just for a week Uh, (laughs) and then started working kind of in-house corporate fundraising for homeless charity for a domestic abuse charity and a series of unfortunate events really led me to where I am now where in COVID I lost my job I was about to start work at a theatre obviously they all closed and I started my company and my first contract was curating the BAME online fundraising conference so it kind of all went from there wasn't expecting any of this but actually in my soul it feels like this is what I was meant to do so I say a series of unfortunate events but they were very much fortunate and they probably didn't feel like it at the time so yeah that's a whistle stop tour (laughs) name dropped Maya Angelou obviously I normally joke with people and I'm like tell us so first you were born and people are like ah ha 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 and then I'm like no you've done yet First I was born. Then Maya Angelou. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So when we have guests on, we try to figure out what's the problem in this sector, in the not-for-profit sector, that we need help solving. Obviously, the super sexy thing to talk about right now is decolonization, anti-racism, feminist approaches, intersectionality, like these sexy buzzwords that are flying around. And we've worked for a few organizations as consultants Mm -hmm. and as employees where we just go around calling bullshit on everything, which I quite enjoy as part of our job. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Throw it out there. (laughs) I mean, it gives me a channel. I've made my saltiness my action. 
activism, I think. I can just be as yeah. like cranky and mean as I want and just say, well, this is part of my activism, which I think is great. Great for me. <laughs> the problem that I see is when organizations bring people in to help them understand how to take forward massive things like decolonizing aid, decolonizing their agendas, these huge, massive topics. What I find is that it actually just turns into rapid tricks and tips. EDI. <laughs> yeah, let's get into that. Let's get into that. It will turn into EDI. Yeah. yeah. And I want to understand how we move beyond that. Because, you know, just before we were recording, we were talking about how sometimes people will say, well, help us understand anti-racism in an hour. That's a band-aid. If you could solve racism in an hour, we wouldn't have racism. We wouldn't have systemic structural inequality if these things could be solved as easily as that. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how do we move beyond that space? Like, how do we move toward changing people to not be dicks oh <laughs> big question and i don't i don't think i can necessarily <laughs> have the answers otherwise i would have yeah. <laughs> i say we need to start with naming the problem which is white supremacy and i think you know it's easier to say racism and that somehow makes it seem as though it just happens that everybody is involved in equal measures i think we have a real problem with kind of skirting around issues because you know then they can stay mystified I guess and I found that you know first it was equality diversity and inclusion skirting around the issues of racism and now it's talking about anti-racism without naming white supremacy so I'd say for me it starts with naming the problem that we're trying to tackle which is the imperialist white supremacist capitalist ableist cis heteropatriarchy and I actually think from there the rest actually follows maybe that's oversimplifying it what I find more often than not is that people say they want to do anti-racism or like decolonization I've never said I do decolonization because I'm not convinced that you can decolonize colonialism. <laughs> and if we look at aid and the broader charity sector, the industry that it is, not just kind of philanthropy, like the love of humanity, that is colonization. It is extraction, it's exploitation. Philanthropic imperialism is a topic that we've spoken about quite a lot at BAME Online. So I don't necessarily think you can decolonize something that's very purpose is colonization. You know, you can decolonize something that existed <laughs> in a form, you know, ahead of time maybe like wealth we can talk about that but I don't necessarily think you can decolonize aid or you can decolonize philanthropy or anything mm. like that I think it's really difficult you know because I often feel like utterly baffled or like I'm in an alternate reality you know when I talk to leaders who want to do anti-racism work but we're not going to talk about land we're not going to talk about reparations we're not going to talk about white supremacy we're only going to talk about interpersonal racism because that's what feels comfortable and I'm like yeah but I feel like we've kind of dealt with interpersonal <laughs> racism I mean we've got a whole bunch of bogus discrimination acts <laughs> that are floating around all the time so I do feel like because there is a complete lack of understanding of like how all consuming these systems are because yeah yeah, there's the white supremacy of like the charity sector but what about the white supremacy within like that is something that people can't really engage with you know you say racism exists they're like yeah of course it does but not me and I'm like no like, <laughs> we yeah. kind of need to start with ourselves I don't think people realize that well in my opinion dismantling the imperialist white supremacist capitalist cis heteropatriarchy is the only thing that matters all of our work centers around that um, all of you know climate breakdown climate catastrophe like is rooted in imperialism, colonialism, all of that. There's actually nothing else that matters. Leaders in the charity sector think that their missions are separate to that, or that's a nice to have, or they don't realise that this is life and death. And not just for like people of colour, for all of us, right? You know, all these countries are underwater. What is it, two thirds of Pakistan is underwater right now. This is, you know, 
the only thing that matters and I think because we try and look at these things in isolation obviously I'm loathe to talk about intersectionality because I find it quite annoying the way it's used in the charity sector but like all of these things being connected resting on each other mutually reinforcing each other colluding with each other I feel like I'm rambling but yeah it matters so much you know and I don't I don't think leaders have any idea what we're up against what we're trying to do they don't even understand how to achieve their own missions because their missions are dependent on dismantling racism You know, you cannot do good mental health unless you're tackling inequality. You cannot do even things that (laughs) don't seem to kind of have a natural link to colonialism, like, you know, deforestation organisations or helping the orangutans. All of that stuff like really hinges on this history of exploitation. And I just feel like people are not making the links or refusing to see the links because they think it protects their position. But ultimately, we're all going to die if (laughs) I know this sounds really like morbid, but we will all die if we don't tackle these fundamental issues you know so yeah very cheerful (laughs) (laughs) a very powerful start there's just such a risk you know echoing very much what you're saying that all these terms are kind of mashed and pulled together and then people just don't understand what they mean against the problem itself so you know I work in evaluation and asking people about anti-racism and racism and evaluation you know I get then conversations about shifting power about decolonization and it's almost kind of skirting back around the issue and avoiding very much the problem mm-hmm. that you're saying well people don't understand what these words mean yeah they use them I mean a lot of what I'm seeing going around at the moment is you know lots of really incredible activists being like stop treating decolonization like a metaphor does the literal return of land like it is real it's material and that doesn't mean diversifying your bloody reading list <laughs> you know what I mean and a part of like the work that I do with my colleague Khadija who is one of the most she must be so embarrassed every time she hears me talk because I'm like she's the most amazing thinker but she's really quite you know brilliant in the way that she can grasp some of these issues and we do a series called BAME Online Scholar where we look at terms like racism like intersectionality allyship which needs to die a swift death (laughs) and and we really get to the heart of what they mean historically politically and invite people to do this stuff properly because ultimately I think people are just saying a bunch of words and hoping that no one notices that they're not doing anything or they worst case scenario they actually think that saying words means doing something and Emma Dabry's got this amazing book called What White People Can Do Next and she talks about this allyship phenomenon of just saying stuff mm. and so like, like that makes, is, a lot of this is resonating know, I mean, <laughs> just say stuff and that makes it true and like that's not how it works yes uttering things is so important but firstly we're uttering the wrong things like I don't see anybody seriously talking about white supremacy you know mm. maybe we can talk about whiteness I've had organisations like you can talk about whiteness but don't talk about white supremacy I'm like well then I'm not talking about whiteness (laughs) you know like do you want this or do you not and some of it is it's maddening like sometimes I feel like what the hell is going on you know this is as well been constructed to actually drive me mad but yeah yeah yes yes it has (laughs) but how do you do this because like i have fundamental questions about whether people who benefit from their privilege are able to constructively meaningfully step away from their privilege so in this whole idea of like shifting power comes from a project that we were working on where they were like we're a feminist organization and we're decolonizing 
which, which sh- was shifting power. <laughs> All the interviews started with me just saying, can I just ask you what shifting power means? Practically, actually, what do you think it means? And nobody could really give me a coherent definition of like how they operationalize that mm. phraseology. I was just like, I want to believe you when you say this is on your agenda, but if nobody knows what that means. So I guess one in an hour, in the hour that you have that people bring you along for. I now demand yeah. a lot more hours. I'm like, now I'm like, we'll work together for a year. Yeah. I'm with you for the next 25 years. <laughs> and it will never be enough. That's yeah. the thing. No matter how much time people... I even think to myself, like I can drive myself completely around the bend with all of the things I need to learn. I need to know and able to do this work. And it's and it's never really enough. Sorry, I cut you off because I feel like you were going to ask me a question. And I was just like, it's not enough. No, it's absolutely right. It's, it's never enough time. So I guess, how do you move through, one, breaking down these definitions, two, getting people to understand where they're situated in those dynamics, and three, getting them to move forward beyond, I'm calling them rapid tricks and tips, because ultimately I think that unless you're talking about a person's whole soul being different, understanding something different, I think you're just teaching them how to juggle, right? Yeah. How do you do all of that in a compressed time frame? How do you know it's working? How do you... I'm not sure it is. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do work that's similar to yours, but in terms of getting people to be different, to understand where they are, to challenge people's perspectives and challenge them to sit in different perspectives to the best that they can. Sometimes I just feel like I'm just talking a little shit and people don't... They're just like nodding at me. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Like, you want me to go away, don't you? Like, you, you just want me to take the money, write the report, get out of here. Right? And all they're very good to take the words back at you yeah. without understanding them. Yeah, I'm like, this is personality mirroring. Like, you're just copying what Literally. you see from me. So, I don't know, what does that look like? I mean, I don't feel like I get it right a lot of the time, if I'm being honest. I mean, there's been lots of instances where I've worked with clients for like a year and then I find out from their staff that they're doing a whole bunch of even worse stuff. Wow. But they've worked with me so therefore they can tell everybody you know so I don't think I'm getting it right all of the time and that stuff like really deeply disturbs my spirit because I put a lot of work into this but I guess on a kind of general way I'd say what's been really helpful like firstly I make it quite fun I force conversation so I never write reports like I hate writing reports I don't do audits or anything like that everything I do is within workshop context so it forces people to be in relationship with each other which for me is at the heart of this but I think taking this work out of the individual and into the system has been really helpful so I don't really talk about privilege like I don't think it's that useful of an analysis because I think it reinforces biological essentialism that like you know you have this particular body so therefore you have this particular set of life circumstances and that's not really how life works and I think when you get into privilege you know I talk about this a lot with Khadija it becomes accusation you know you're a woman so therefore you don't understand this or like you're you know they feel like that can be really distracting from the kind of systemic nature of capitalism white supremacy and patriarchy which will exploit whoever <laughs> depending it doesn't really matter what body you're in right so i'd say taking it away from that kind of personal and individual into systemic for me it's like really understanding the history understanding why racism happened when it happened for what purpose right and when you start seeing that all of these things have the purpose to separate us from each other to kind of separate us from our bodies to separate us from nature i find that quite powerful for people to be like oh shit we've all been hoodwinked Mm -hmm. we've all been utterly hoodwinked and it's made us hate each other it's made us resent each other and that's why like i think joy is paramount to this and working in coalition is paramount because we have to rebuild those bonds not just of like solidarity of like just being in relationship with each other i feel like i've never said 
I'm an anti-racist because I don't think it's a destination, right? It's a practice. It's a skill that you hone. It's basically just courage, right? And I think once we get away from thinking, oh, this is some kind of destination rather than like, this is a way that we move through the world together, that makes a big difference. But I'm still working it out. I'm not entirely sure like what it is that people click. I want this to be fun. Like the work is fun. I laugh a lot. I tell a lot of cheesy jokes. And (laughs) I don't want to be like, oh, you know, you have to be fun to be an anti-racist practitioner because you really don't have this is the difference between life and death but yeah I think taking it out of the personal into the systemic understanding the history and also I think people expect like people I went to see Arundhati Roy in conversation the other day with my mommy someone asked her like how do you find joy and she was like why do people think that this work is inherently horrible or like joyless what is joyless is racism anti-racism is love it's liberation right and the more people can switch on to the fact that we're rebuilding a loving world I think that is incredibly powerful even if people don't know what that world is going to look like they just know that they don't want to be in this shithole yeah. <laughs> you know that we're in so that's I feel like I didn't quite answer your question because there isn't an answer that I can confidently give but that's my approach my approach is not the only approach we need all approaches yeah we need the grumpy people we need the people who, <laughs> I'm who here use, yeah. you know we need the evaluation people we need the storytellers we need the dreamers we need the dancers we need absolutely everything because the colonial project took everything from us mm. so we have to bring it all back so yeah that's my answer in a roundabout way I like it (laughs) yeah me too and the angle of joy I think has come up a few times with other guests and I think that kind of positive spin you know you can't be where you are right now means you have to move and potentially move into liberation and joy is a lesson that I'm becoming really attuned to I'm curious you mentioned people think they've been hoodwinked and then they kind of I guess step out of that what does that look like at what point do people say oh wow this is something that's been pulled over my Mm. my eyes so when I talk about the history of whiteness this is where the hoodwink because I think I actually feel like obviously I hate racism I want it to end but it is the most ingenious construction that I've ever seen in my life so much work has gone into it and kind of like learning about the invention of whiteness being a tool to stop white working class Irish indentured labourers from uniting against colonial martyrs with enslaved Africans it was literally like oh we invented this race so that these people wouldn't come together and fight a class war so actually I want white people to abandon whiteness to say no I'm not going to be white you know I like whiteness is no longer the thing to strive for and the fact that you actually have a choice people don't realize because everyone thinks that race is something that's worn on the skin it's biological right but actually it's socio-political it's psychological it's not fucking real so, so it's like, am I allowed to swear yeah okay cool oh we swear fucking guns <laughs> and it's quite interesting like talking to people and they're like oh wait, I have a choice and I was like yeah you have a choice like, you can abandon whiteness you can abandon gender you can abandon heteronormativity and what I find the most interesting is you know so many people who are neurodiverse or ADHD or are autistic I just don't see those kinds of social boxes in the same kind of way people who are autistic or have ADHD are more likely to be trans non-binary queer and because so much of this is social conditioning like we're conscripted into being a particular way and whiteness is you know perfectionism it's either or thinking it's the urge to forever grow over like any <laughs> you know mastery over all things and it's a prison for everybody is it? I might be white yeah <laughs> what's your name? either or thinking mastery of all things uh, striving for success perfectionism sounds like Tia I might be white and most working class white people the power that comes with whiteness is an illusion you know they don't get any of the material benefits of being white they might as well be black like the rest of us and it's so interesting you see this pitting of white 
white working class interests against the interests of people of colour happening from the 1660s up until now, up until the Brexit campaign. It keeps happening, reiterating, creating this false sense of scarcity, which stops us from realising that we've got the same oppressor. Mm. <laughs> it's exactly the same oppressor oppressing us in different ways but they're using white people I'm saying this in inverted commas as a way to yeah I guess maintain order within this capitalist colonialist project that is still going on today so I think it's ingenious I do but also it's not inherent it's not something that can't be dismantled it had a start it will have an end and because people don't know the history the amount of times that I come onto podcast shows whatever people are like well racism has always existed and I'm like well no it hasn't <laughs> you know it's a relatively new phenomenon 500 years so that's my answer (laughs) (laughs) i always end my answer with that's my answer and that's that's the answer full stop going back to racism having a starting point i mean no one ever talks about that (laughs) in any spaces i've you know anyone has approached me about evaluation of racism and so forth so at what point in your life do you learn about yeah literally apart from it's bad that's not even a helpful yeah way to think about it it's more like it is that's what we need to think about like (laughs) i mean going back to when i was at school like we couldn't call it a blackboard or a whiteboard but then you know i look back at where my bloody waste of time right (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm like everyone is just going around calling it a board of color <laughs> indeed now they are <laughs> they're like it's a racialized board it's a minoritized board but we get so hung up on these words if you think about what people are obsessed with it's words to describe individuals groups of individuals rather than words to describe the oppression the actual thing that matters instead we will always focus like navel gazing pointing fingers at each other what's the correct word for a group of POC who cares you know like white supremacy is going to kill us like let's worry about that <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's a gaggle <laughs> i think the scarcity mindset is something that really is coming out of a lot of these conversations about how that is used as a tool to control people's thinking to control us to control our social dynamics and something that reverberates across everything we see the not-for-profit sector right so more and more i start to think this is the origin of a lot of problems is the myth of scarcity agreed which fucking sucks and you know the, the news like feeds into that hardcore right there's no funding left there is no resources for you to do this and so everyone panics and the reason that people invest like so little time on anti-racism when really it should be like at the core of how they live their lives is because of that kind of scarcity mindset and that urgency mindset oh my gosh we've got a problem that we need to solve right now i'm like what Mm. so domestic abuse is not going to exist in a couple of weeks if we don't spend two weeks talking about this are you sure like or do you think you're that important that you can't take a month away from your work in order to really think about how to do it properly so much of that fighting fire stuff i feel for the people who are the practitioners it's not really their fault it's the way that the system is designed someone i think it's tony morrison who says that the very function of racism is distraction and kind of keeps you from doing anything you know to actually dismantle it in a meaningful way that's what i see happening in the charity sector so much i was like i don't have time i don't have time and it's like (laughs) i couldn't want to go back to it but like we are all going to die if we don't make the time you know know and it always sounds so morbid but i think we think of these things in the abstract so much but like this is the difference between life and death you know and just because it hasn't happened on our soils yet but like london was on fire the other day because it got too hot do you not remember this yeah, right <laughs> you just think if it's not now then when is it yeah. when yeah. will be the right time yeah. for us to preserve our existences every year in the states there's the once in a lifetime hurricane that oh, just yeah. keeps happening every year i'm like no no that was last year <laughs> We did this already. In some places, we did the 
just six months ago. So yeah, I think the urgency conversation really matters because what I see are a bunch of people getting together and like, let's just talk about it and figure it out. Let's just get into these talking groups and have this whole conversation. When for me, sometimes it feels like there's a kind of performative ignorance. Oh, sure. I don't know what to do. So I want to hear and get consensus from people. I'm and I'm like, you know what? I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> no, you fucking know what to do. You're just being lazy. Now go and do it. Take one single step today and show me that this is not mm. willful ignorance. Mm. Show me that you're not just performing this type of whatever they, it is. they know that if they did this properly, they wouldn't have a job. That's the thing. I mean, you know, we talk about decolonizing aid, right? Like, I don't work with any international development organizations. I have a real ripe with them. Like, I don't think it's quite right. All those shifting power conversations. If you were shifting power, you would close up your shop in London or in the UK and you would give all the money to the people working in the countries that are affected by the problems. If you're not doing that, you're not really interested in decolonizing at all, anti-racism or whatever. There is that deep investment in the identity of being a do-gooder at the same time as kind of knowing that what you're doing is wrong. I think people know that what they're doing is wrong. It's just really hard for them to accept it for sure. But I always go back to this activist called Poker Lanewee, who's a Hawaiian activist who talks about the process of decolonization. It is mainly about, I think, decolonizing the mind, but I find it really, really helpful to kind of know like how deep the process goes. And they say that the first step is rediscovery and recovery, which is all about learning and unlearning. So learning like the truth of colonization. I mean, it's so violent and ugly and people are acting like it was just like a couple people got on some ships or whatever right I'm like no it's super casual absolutely like brutal the cruelty of English administrators is I mean I'm not surprised I've met English people (laughs) there's that which is like really kind of like dedicating yourself to really understanding not just the financial aspect of it the spiritual aspect all of the denigration and subordination that happened and then you mourn and this is the bit like everybody misses out which is really uncovering those feelings of grief because I think for everybody involved, you know, white people, people of colour, colonised, uncolonised people, we all have skin in the game in this. Like, this has affected our psyche so deeply. We need to grieve and mourn and do that together. Poker is always saying that it's a social process. And all of this is a social process. Like, you're not supposed to have a reading list and then just never talk to anyone. And then you dream. And the third step, which is the one that people struggle with the most, that's accessing that radical imagination. And that's about creating new ideas rather than recycling ideas that were introduced by colonial manufacturers, which is fucking impossible. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you do that? How do you you dream? Like, how do you have an idea when your teacher, your instructor has been white supremacy? And that takes so much courage. It takes so much innovation, imagination. I'm only just getting to the point where I feel comfortable to even say that I might be dreaming, right? Like, I might be. And even then, sometimes I'm like, no, I'm just doing more white supremacy. Always comes back to that one. (laughs) And then you commit and then you act. So we have organizations, leaders who are like, oh, we've just discovered we're racist as though they weren't told that before you know what I mean like you just think who are you trying to kill are you kidding me you know what I mean like 2020 they're like oh my gosh we're racist and like whoops and then they're like right let's go to step number five action and I'm like do you know what racism is they can't articulate what racism is they can't articulate what race is like what the fuck are you doing you know so I obviously try not to be too harsh but sometimes I just think oh my gosh imagine you're like I'm starting a business I'm going to do marketing and you just start marketing have no plan you've done no research into what marketing is <laughs> no time to kind of imagine a marketing campaign you just suddenly go out there like whoa that is utter nonsense if this is going to be part of people's work treat it like work it needs its own directorate it needs really like proper investment because as i said it's the only thing that matters but instead people are like yeah like of course we can do anti-racism because we're good people and we have good intentions and i just think well that is 
the most racist thing that I can yeah. hear, you know? That, like, arrogance. So I feel like organisations have tried. They have either failed and then realised that they need help, which I, you know, commend them for, or they failed and said, oh, wow, those bloody people of colour, they were chatting shit, or, you know, they send out their one person of colour to solve 25 years of racism in their organisation. They were like, well, this person's incompetent, so we're not going to try that again. Wow. And I'm like, God, are we ever going to get free? But I still have hope. But it is that arrogance and just a really lack of understanding of mm. how big this is and like what it takes. I don't think I know what it takes, but I'm willing to risk it all. What about when they're like, oh, we can't use the word whiteness or white supremacy? Do you say, no, I'm not going to work with you? Yeah. Or like, oh, just like, don't, don't waste your money. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you want to do EDI, do EDI. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. want that, it. That's on you. Yeah. yeah. Most organisations, I think, at trustee level, they're like, oh my God, can't say white supremacy. I'm just like, oh. well, at a trustee level. You know what I mean? And I just think, so you can do white supremacy, but you can't say it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, yeah I, I just say they're not serious you know if they're not talking about imperialism if they're not talking about white supremacy like they're yeah. just not serious about it and I get that it takes a little bit of time and it's not overnight everybody's going to be ready what I do is <laughs> on my calls I just force everyone to repeat imperialist white supremacist capitalist cis heteropatriarchy with me a few times so that they've practiced it and I'm like oh did anyone burst into flames <laughs> did your funding stop <laughs> you know but it, it reminds me of the game you play where you try and get your friends who can say tits the loudest yeah. <laughs> this is like the non-profit version of that yeah, yeah. Okay. and I feel like that's a real litmus test if you can't say white supremacy don't fucking bother if you can't say what is at the root of this then you might as well say that reverse racism exists you know like, are we going to name the perpetrator or are we just going to say racism happens and I guess it happens to people of colour because it's their fault like I don't get it just going back to this point about moving to action, I've got a couple of questions about the, the process that's being described in the middle of grieving, dreaming, committing, then acting. It feels like all of the stuff that happens in the middle are reasons why people don't do anything. Yes, I totally <laughs> agree with that. I completely agree. Or oh, they'll do something, they'll just do more white supremacy, right? And it's not like a linear process. Like I think you have to honour all the stages, but then you can keep going back. The most critical anti-racist scholars, they all talk about radical imagination. You know, they all talk about the amount of time that is spent being in community with other people without like an outcome really, but it's about dreaming together. And in my conference, one of the speakers, uh, Mel's, was talking about in slavery, people thought it was absolutely wild that they would ever live the way that we live today that would have been absolutely preposterous <laughs> to think about but they dreamed their escape they imagined you know they created black wall street they built their own future and like if people have been doing this since day dot <laughs> but because again we think oh well white people ended slavery william wilberforce <laughs> blah, blah 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 rather than seeing you know the haitian revolution where people dreamed of their freedom and in haiti which i find really interesting after i think it was the first and only successful slave revolution but maybe i'm wrong about that but at least the first everybody there became black even if they were white they were like we're all black now <laughs> for me like that kind of really exemplifies how this is a social phenomenon the people who had white skin were like yeah we're black now <laughs> we're black haitians you know mm -hmm. and we can't even comprehend that really happening now because we've moved so far away from really understanding what race is as a social phenomenon but yeah i, I definitely think that 
the dreaming part people think it's silly you know or people think it's like naive and that's what makes it i think the hardest part like for example my conference that i put on i had to spend so much time like thinking about how do i do something that is not white supremacy so i was just like right let me just think about what white supremacy is and then i'll just do the opposite right <laughs> <laughs> you know i was like right no white speakers whatsoever i had like one token white person that yeah. we thought was very funny well you've always got to have one token white person <laughs> you know to make it religious <laughs> them in the middle of the, the, the banner on the website like jumping into the air right and we were like right okay we're going to make it so that anybody can come if they want to as long as they have access to the internet which again i'm thinking about how do we cater for people that don't have access to the internet so we made it pay what you can which is actually quite unusual again like i'm still in that place where like i'm just learning how to dream myself and because i left the charity sector and ran my own thing like I finally have the space to do that because I'm not constantly distracted by bullshit (laughs) which which I think is you know so much of what happens in the charity sector is bullshit just distraction after distraction after distraction and the people who are doing really incredible work like they work at a different pace like I think about Amara Spence yeah in Birmingham who is the founder of Maya and I think I always get it wrong how you say it yard art yard just yard (laughs) she's like you better call it the right thing (laughs) talking about having these long-term strategies where like she's thinking about how to use land and planning like 10 years in advance and funders being like we need outcomes right now and her being like no Mm. fuck off because i need to think i need to strategize for my community because you know colonialism was 400 years in the making what we're going to do like a a one-day planning session and then we know what we're going to do no we need to be like planning dreaming and strategizing for years for maybe even like a century and we just don't at least in the charity sector there is no like mainstream organization that's even thinking that that's something that they could do or something that they need to do which is really sad i in principle love everything that you're saying (laughs) in practice i'm thinking knowing how far we are from getting any kind of relative equality for people getting their basic needs met I feel like the longer you spend on things, thinking, planning, strategizing, which is as somebody who loves strategy, I, I love it. I have a 10 year plan in my life with a spreadsheet. It's a Gantt chart. Like I love a plan. I love thinking Sounds ahead. very white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it helps me understand yeah. like where I want to go. It works for my way of thinking. I mean, I'm pretty convinced after this conversation that I'm the whitest person I know. <laughs> I just, I wonder, can you get caught in these cycles of planning and thinking that mean that the problem explodes around you? Like if we don't tackle climate change or start making really substantive advances towards combating climate change or reversing climate change, if we just spend all that time thinking about what we're going to do and planning, it's just blowing up around us. So where's the space or where's the tension around trying something like we had a guest on who's talking about experiments piloting trying things to help you understand because i just feel like i don't know if we spend too long thinking and trying to understand something so deeply Mm. the problem around us is spiraling out of control Mm. and we'll never actually get to where we need to go so what's the what's the time frame for dreaming (laughs) i don't want to be the whitest person in this van but 
what's the cutoff? Time frame on it. I don't know, and maybe it's that like some people are dreamers, some people are not, some people are doers. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I kind of straddle both. I don't think I have an easy answer for you at all. I mean, I sometimes think we are literally in like the epicenter of imperialism in the UK, and actually there are people you know across the world who are doing this much better than us. And how can we support them? Like I look at you know Cuba and what's happening in Latin America, and actually sometimes it feels like this is the world, this place right now, this hellish plague island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's not and actually maybe it's like you know how do we lend our support how do we learn from people who have already done that dreaming because there's yeah. plenty of people that have done the dreaming yeah. you know what I mean they've done it better than us because they understand this shit better than us as yeah. well yeah. I mean if white supremacy is your mum and dad which is basically what it feels like no shade to my actual parents but <laughs> but that is like you know how you're raised then and I do think that is a good question you're like how do you straddle that kind of thing and I don't entirely know sometimes I think we get really like hung up on outcomes but I don't necessarily know whether that's what it's all about. It's not like suddenly we get to this place. I feel like it's like moving away from the place that we're in now because we don't really know where we're going to. So I don't have a clear-cut answer on that at all. It feels like it's moving a little bit closer to what you were describing before about coalition and about needing everyone. Because maybe there is a world for me in my 10-year spreadsheet. <laughs> maybe what I need is a dreamer. Maybe it's about those coalitions and bringing people together and resourcing diverse I'm talking about diverse as like a description mm -hmm. maybe there's something in that space oh, definitely I mean, how do you bring a dreamer into international development organisations do you go catch them with a butterfly <laughs> yeah like <laughs> because I mean I'm thinking so much about I have such a international development background and I feel like I'm in a square the ability to step out of the thoughts and think of something a new idea I, I cannot it feels so tightly bound and you um, need a lot of space for that and I, I mean what I think about a lot of work is how do we fund that i'm having more conversations with funders about okay like you're funding people for like outcomes that may not even be effective for their communities why don't you mm. fund them to strategize with their communities about something that's actually impactful mm. and how do we measure that impact and safia craig who is you know a great anti-racist activist talks about key performance questions rather than key performance indicators and i think because we keep being so fixated on getting to a point as though like life doesn't carry on you know it's actually about how do you do your practice it's rather like how are you going to do things rather than like what are you going to do and I think that's been a big mindset shift for me I'm just kind of like working this stuff out as I go along as well trying different things out but what I will say is since I stopped firefighting I've been able to imagine this incredible series of learning and bring people along with me in a way that I just could never do because I was too busy doing nonsense genuinely like doing absolute nonsense and I feel bad so I know that people I've worked with before I listened to some of this stuff and I'm like yeah it's not you like it's the systems that we were in Anna <laughs> no, no you're yeah. not nonsense this yeah, is nonsense, this is nonsense. <laughs> and it's like deep down we all know it some of us just have the guts to say it but working in coalition and there's something that this activist or scholar I always feel like the fine line called Mary Matsudo who talks about intersectionality and in inverted commas but she talks about working in coalition allows us to see like the connectedness of all oppressions so you know how does racism become transphobia what are the class interests in that and actually we need to kind of bring the bonds back because so much of the white supremacist patriarchal imperial project is about breaking the bonds of solidarity between people and stopping people from rising up together and you'll see that the times when the state has really clamped down on people is when they see that people are coming together and a good example of that is the black panther party creating all these amazing coalitions there was even a white panther party of people who were like we reject whiteness and support the plight of african people 
people of African Americans, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we need that kind of coalition. We need the dreamers. We need the scholars. We need the activists. We need the spreadsheet people. Thank you. (laughs) You're in. I'm ready. (laughs) We need it all because I think we're up against it. And I don't even know the fucking half of it. You know, (laughs) for me, the most disappointing thing in all of this has been how our sector has responded to Ukraine. And like everything that you've just been talking about, the white supremacy, the superior complex, the arrogance, all of it. They've just gone and replicated it and said, I'm coming, you need me, I'm in. Without the space for a collaboration coalition, without thinking strategically about what they need, the whole thing has been repeated really recently. In a space as well where there's the massive influx of aid and support to non-brown people. In the same way, like we've had conversations for a couple of projects. I'm like, well, why do you think there's just been this massive influx of support for Ukraine? And people are like, well, because they're white. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. So it's almost like there's that space of replicating and replicating different dynamics on top Mm, of it, which is a little bit I definitely think that, particularly when it comes to crisis mode, Mm. it is literally like people learn nothing. They just resort to what they know. And what we know is pretty bad. So I'm, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, you just see the same organisations making the same mistakes all the time. It is like resorting to business as usual nonsense. And there is so much appetite within organisations to do things differently. But the Mm. people who hold the levers of power don't give a shit. I mean, does that mean we're always going to have stuff to do? What, us as evaluators? Yeah, us. We're always going to have stuff to do. Like, if they keep doing the same dumb shit over and over and over again, that means... Yeah, maybe I give that lesson for the 10th time. They're bound. Yeah, we presumably then have less work to do. You just change the date on the report. Pretty much, I mean... Someone said that to me. Like, like, don't you want people to do racism? Yeah. Because then you, you, and I'm like, not because if racism ends, so does capitalism. And then we, do you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. then I won't have to work this kind of way. Like, it won't be like this kind of fear of losing my job. So actually, it's all good. Like, <laughs> it's all fine. I worry about the fact that I've been essentially trained by the charity sector and how that's seeped into how I do my own work. I have to be really vigilant that I don't start thinking in terms of saviorism. I'm going to end racism or like my way of doing things is the right way of doing things which I don't really believe like I think my way of doing things is the fun way of doing things yeah. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's right I think that can be you know really hard to be that discerning and to admit that we're all conscripted into white supremacy nobody is immune from it we all like to think we're special but no one's special not like that at least you know and that's been like a real learning moment for me you know I fixate on the master's tools whenever dismantled the master's house quote all the time because then when we talk about like dreaming and like the radical imagination it's really getting to the the heart of that quote and you know i feel like stay awake at night being like oh shit am i a white supremacist (laughs) but actually the fact that i'm asking those questions i think that's important right it's about asking yourself these questions rather than demanding answers all the time and demanding an outcome there is no outcome well apart from the destruction of all things (laughs) (laughs) the outcome is death (laughs) i mean it reminds me of the question you asked at the conference it was when did you know you were part of the problem what have you done about it i'm still part of the problem you know you can't exist within a system even if you're trying to dismantle it and not be part of that and some of it is like making people with that and not expecting this ideological perfection I think that's what I've had to work on a lot is ideological purity and expecting my politics to always be at the centre of how I do things when I ultimately operate within a system like sometimes I have to compromise I don't like it at all (laughs) but that expectation of like ideological purity from other activists that's going to end coalition building if we're like this person doesn't think exactly the same way as I think therefore I can't organise with them like we're fucked really aren't we so but 
I think I've been like that before, like demanding purity all the time. And, you know, it feels like the more liberal you are, the more inclined you are to eat your own. Yeah. Like, <laughs> when I think about like politics in America, I see conservative, hardcore, far right. Doesn't matter. They're just like, they work together. We hate them. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Whereas we're like, mm, but didn't use the right pronouns. I know. You know, the more liberal you are, the more willing you are to just eat your own tail. I do think as somebody who really does love a principled approach. (laughs) Sorry. Are you battling your white supremacy right now? (laughs) I am accepting that I'm part of the problem. (laughs) I want things to have, this is an approach I'm going to take and I want to see that people are working towards that and driving towards that and I have an appreciation and a sensitivity for when that doesn't happen but I want to know that people are moving in harmony with their thoughts and their Mm. word and deed is all moving in the same direction understanding that it's a journey and it's not a perfect one no but it does really make me feel good when things are like nicely aligned together (laughs) (laughs) but this is my black and white thinking I just it's really hard for me not to think that Mm. way because it just feels really uncomfortable to exist in shades of grey well unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it you gotta get used to some grey areas because this shit is messy right and I think I said it earlier like everyone thinks like decolonization anti-racism is a feeling or like a metaphor or whatever but it's like like, no it's violent revolution like it Mm -hmm. really is and I don't think we're really at a place where even I don't think I'm at a place where I've really like deeped what that means because if we look at like what's happening in the global south where people are fighting for their land you know Mm -hmm. people are fighting for their lives and we're out here being like oh yes I'm going to create an anti-racism strategy (laughs) and a working group and it's like what the fuck are we doing like but (laughs) you know the stakes are so different and actually you know it's really important to have that kind of internationalist perspective and know what the hell is going on and know that this is life and death for people it's all very well and good to be here in the abstract but people die here you know you saw the impact of COVID-19 we're seeing the crackdown on protesting like disproportionately affecting people of colour so I don't even know where I'm going with this I was just like blah 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 (laughs) (laughs) more and more fear mongering (laughs) you're all gonna die I like that though coming back to the violent revolution it totally puts a whole I guess more realistic spin on what people are talking about decolonisation and so forth so let's kind of flip that the other side let's go back to EDI oh god my favourite <laughs> quality, diversity and inclusion what is that about? I have no idea I don't know <laughs> yeah. and it's funny because everyone thinks I do know and I'm like I literally don't understand what because what are you all doing I'm not quite sure what EDI is I guess it's like food, fun and flags like a lot of the time <laughs> well everybody likes things clustered into threes so <laughs> yeah. It sounds nice. No, I mean, I feel like equality, diversity and inclusion is a neoliberal attempt to tinker around the edges of like some really quite big systemic problems. I mean, I don't know many EDI strategies that talk about white supremacy. That's when I'm like, when I see one of those, then I'll be like, call it what it is, an anti-oppression strategy, you know. I see that EDI is very much about how do we maintain the same structures but have different faces at the top. And I think a really successful EDI project is the Conservative Party. I think that you're right, right wing people are much better at this shit because they are like okay actually how can I carry on neoliberal project without anyone bloody noticing (laughs) and claim that everything's changed there are a couple of people who I think are doing like EDI kind of well but it's because they're doing anti-oppression and calling it EDI so that they get the contracts which (laughs) makes a lot of sense to me I don't see it as bringing about the revolutionary change that people want it to bring about I see it as just completely maintaining the same power structures except having yeah different faces at the top and maybe using different 
different language, but ultimately the impact for people in the global south is exactly the fucking same. Or even for the poorest people in the UK, you know, poor working class, disabled, trans people of colour, like EDI strategies don't do much to benefit them, I would say. So I'm quite anti-EDI and I get very frustrated, again, because people don't understand what racism is, they don't understand about white supremacy. They'll come to me and be like, yeah, EDI, we're doing the same thing. And I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> we're not. And like, I don't even want to, you know, I don't want to shit on people for doing their jobs. I know that many people think that doing EDI is worthwhile, but it doesn't do anything to dismantle capitalism, imperialism, white supremacy, patriarchy, in my opinion. If anything, it hides them. You know, it will have a woman as the patriarch. Or, <laughs> you know, a black person enacting incredibly racist policies. We just need to move on from that. And mm. there's a really good book called Reclaiming Anti-Racism. They talk about the kind of incredible activists and... Rev- I keep saying revolutionaries. I don't know if I'm using that, that term correctly, really. They were incredible activists and, like, change makers in, like, the 70s, 80s, 90s in Britain. Basically being subsumed into the neoliberal project, brought into government positions, brought into NGOs, right, when actually they were a lot more impact in their kind of smaller community groups you know we had the British Black Panther Party loads of people who ended up kind of within these neoliberal frameworks who had their political ambitions totally watered down into EDI into equalities work not into like liberation or justice really and it's quite interesting seeing that happen all the time where there's something or somebody who you think oh god they're really gonna you know shake things up and then next thing you know I think of like Stacey Abrams as an example of that you know (laughs) saying she's loving up capitalism come on man like but it's true these forces of white supremacy of capitalism they're so seductive and also I don't think you can really affect huge mass massive change from within these frameworks so that's why I've chosen to have my business which is not beholden to the charity commission and so I can say what I think needs to be said but at the same time like I'm still trapped in capitalism mm. EDI is like neoliberal silly stuff like, <laughs> <laughs> people are gonna hear that and they're gonna be like Martha's a dick and I'm like yeah fine if it means yeah. that you do something like you know radical then I'll be a dick yeah yeah <laughs> that's what it takes yeah. Yeah. I mean we're all kind of thinking it. Yeah. Uh, we got called in to do a, a gender equality thematic review. And there's all of this like EDI stuff going around and I was like, but what, what, what are we looking at here? What are we talking about? I don't really understand what you're saying. But they don't understand what they're saying either. <laughs> they're just like, if I say enough buzzwords, can I can I carry on? Can I, can I get a pass? I'm, like, I'm quite pedantic. So I'm like, but what does it mean? What are these words? <laughs> mm mean which is something that i think drives you crazy um, like, but what is it and i think a really big takeaway for me is renaming and understanding what it is yeah is that first big step to which is the going. first step of poker lane yeah. thing. <laughs> I'm totally with you. We are so woefully miseducated. I think there's worse educations happening here. And I would call it propaganda, our schooling system. I didn't learn anything about anything useful. Like, you know, even just the way that history is kind of denigrated in university, right? And even though it's probably the most important (laughs) subject for people to be studying. But yeah, I'm totally with you. Like, I think firstly, like, we as people of colour need to reclaim our words, right? Reclaim our shit. Tell people, like, if you're going to say this word, but fucking know what it means intersectionality is the one that I really can't handle like I'm doing an event with Khadija on it next week because she also finds it really stressful and I've avoided talking about it because people are like 
middle class white women like I'm intersectional it's like what the fuck does that mean you know like what are you trying to say I think so much of it starts with learning and I actually feel like if you do the learning properly the actions follow discussion is not the same as learning I think we need a huge kind of like bout of political education and that's like part of what I love about the work that I'm doing with the BAME online series is all about political education you know bringing people back to school what I find really encouraging about it is it is like way more people of colour that come recognising that we too don't know shit (laughs) we too have had you know our histories our words taken from us and bastardised and like we're spouting white supremacist nonsense I spent most of my life spouting white supremacist nonsense and thinking I was smart (laughs) and to admit that is you know I'm still doing it you know (laughs) I think that matters but it doesn't matter any more than you know reclaiming our money our lands like all of that I just think this is what I know how to do best and I'm totally with you on the learning I just think this podcast in fact has been a journey of unlearning for me and I just want to recommend maybe not others to start podcasts because we don't want that much competition but like to actually scarcity mindset white supremacy you're right I know you can work in coalition you can do coalition podcasts (laughs) I'm part of the problem (laughs) but to you know start their own journey of learning and unlearning we all should I mean it's amazing like it's absolutely freeing and like there's a reason why education is the way that it is so that we don't realise like what's happening to us so I'm totally with you that competition stuff is so funny we talk about this all the time at work where I'm like we shouldn't give out this resource because our competitors and it's like <laughs> our competitors in dismantling white supremacy <laughs> <laughs> Those competitors. I'm going to dismantle it first yeah. <laughs> but that's the mindset of the yeah. charity sector they're like what's best practice the other day an organisation was like how do we be leaders in dismantling <laughs> white supremacy and I was like mm, be Haitian maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like well can you be like you know suddenly they were like we're black Haitian we're black Haitian <laughs> But at the top of every strategy we've ever read, lead the sector in. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, what? Why? Why? <laughs> that kind of like capitalist mindset. You need to learn how to follow. And it's so many different like ways of being or like ways of understanding the world. Even the other day I was reading this book called The Invention of Women. And it's like every fucking word is steeped in white supremacy. So she was talking about the difference between worldview and world sense. And she was like, yeah, in like the UK and in the West, we talk about worldview as if that's a universal principle but actually in other places it's more like a world sense and they're not using their eyes they're using like other senses and she was talking about Yoruba culture my father is Yoruba and I am too and how so much of how the world is perceived is by sound right and about other senses and I was just like oh fucking hell like even this this word I've totally taken for granted as being like a universal way of knowing the world is a white supremacist way of knowing the world and I've tried to universalize that you know and so I feel like so much of me is like just being open to the fact that everything that I think is truth is not truth it's exploitation and it's propaganda and it's very hard to not become a conspiracy theorist <laughs> and then it's like how do you be discerning but I'm also like you know what fine I have to be delusional you need some level of delusion yeah. <laughs> yeah. to think you can be part of dismantling white supremacy like utterly delusional and that's fine but yeah it is true slippery slope to conspiracy theorist <laughs> stuff, you know? I'm glad you said it because I was like hang on I saw your face and I'm like, I know <laughs> I obviously don't think everything is propaganda, but I think everything could be. Yeah. <laughs> could be. Could be. I love it. That's the next episode of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we can connect white supremacy to a flag.
flat earthers, maybe? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm listening to an audiobook that's called The Importance of Being Interested, and it's just talking about being critical and mm-hmm. the value of being skeptical and where that moves into conspiracists and how you make a constructive distinction between the two. Yeah, yeah, um, It's quite interesting so far. I think I'm all right at keeping in within the realms of reality, but, yeah. you know, I mean, who's reality? Yeah. <laughs> we play that game a lot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're always talking about something and we're just like, but from whose perspective? I know, right? Oh, my God. And then it always just comes back down to white supremacy at the end of the day. Sometimes I have these conversations with my mum. I love my mum so much because she just lets me question absolutely everything, like, all the time. Like, I'm like, yeah, but what if this is this? And what if this? And indigenous this and indigenous that? And she's literally just like, okay. Like, no, I just asked you to put this in the post office box. <laughs> and I'm like, that sounds like oppression to you. <laughs> I'll try that with my parents next time. It's like, stop oppressing me, mum. Yeah. I have come to some dark truths about myself. Oh gosh, perhaps. I'm sorry. Um, and no, I'm happy for you at the same time. It's so good. It's I'm healthy. now going to question everything I say. But not where too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're not white, what are you going to be? Um, yeah, what am I going to be? Do you have to be anything? Can I just be blank? You can't be black Asian. <laughs> That's taken. Can I just be blank? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, a vessel. Like, remember that imagination we spoke of? <laughs> yeah, I'm now going into a radical dreaming space. Yeah. So see you later <laughs> <laughs> I guess it could be like you know instead of naming what you are it's like what, what you do not, you know what you do, or what yeah. you do like I don't know I'm not going to be like I'm a revolutionary because I'm fucking not people think I'm so radical and I'm like yeah I have radical friends and like they think I am <laughs> but maybe there is something about not talking about your work or anything but like you know where you're going we often talk about instead of labeling people so we did a project and they won't mind us saying this but they were saying okay you're a human rights defender And one of the things we said is instead of this label, maybe just describe what they're doing. So naming the actions, like defending mm. human rights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe I what's can be, the action? What you um, gonna do? What can I defend? <laughs> <laughs> that one's taken. Oh no! All right, you need to do some dreaming and yeah, think about I'm go reimagining that. what it is that you do. Yeah. I'm always like, I'm a Sagittarius because I feel like that's the least <laughs> political thing to say. I'm like, I'm a Sagittarius and I hate white supremacy. That's how I like introduce myself at parties. I love it. <laughs> Let's bring horoscopes back. Okay. What do you mean back? I never went yeah, anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Just bringing them into meetings. And into, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Dear client, what's your star sign? Yeah. <laughs> that, like, as an opening for training before, like, what's your star sign? Which I think is quite nice because everyone's yeah. like, oh, you're like this. Oh, I'm going to assign meaning to you now. <laughs> I'm assigning meaning to you. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, Martha, this has been amazing. Yeah. Thank, well, thank you, you so for much. having me. It's been really fun. It's really I've been fun. smiling. I had such a good time. And yeah. I think it feels joyous good. to reflect on. <laughs> some dark shit it really does um, and so I think I've got a good sense of you know the experience that you bring when you're facilitating some of this like hard dark fucking terrible stuff in a joyous way <laughs> so we are going to put all the ways that people can get in touch with you and see if that's a good compatible fit <laughs> yeah. I believe you can say yeah. white supremacy otherwise I yeah. don't want to hear from you yes subject line yeah. we are saying white supremacy yeah. we're going to put that in the title of this episode oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Just call it call a spade a spade and the spade is white supremacy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Love it. You're welcome. Yeah. Super. Well, I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. I'm Martha. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.